0: All right, we'll go ahead and get started. This is Romans part thirty nine, and we are looking at Romans twelve six through ten. Uh, and then next week, hopefully, we can finish this chapter because it gets uh, pretty self explanatory some things through here. Um, but Paul here is now dealing with how you act as a Christian in light of what we've learned as far as your position in Christ, uh, the gospel and grace of God that he was teaching in Romans one through eight. And then of course Romans nine through eleven, he digresses to dealing with the nation of Israel and their standing in this dispensation, how they're blind in part and they've fallen uh by rejecting the Messiah, stumbling at that stumbling stone. And so God has set them aside in this dispensation. Right. We are saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done, apart from Israel, apart from their covenants, right? Which is contrary to the old testament prophecies that Salvation comes through Israel, right? Salvation is in Jerusalem. The kingdom comes to Jerusalem. Right? That's not what's happening today. Uh, salvation is in Christ and what he has done, and faith in that. Um, and so you saw that ending of chapters 9 through 11 at the end of Romans 11, 36, where he gives us praise to God for his wisdom and his plan. And at the end, he says, uh, glory to God forever, amen. So you see he concludes that section by the word amen. Um, and then last week, we dealt with his beseeching us, To offer our uh, bodies a living sacrifice, right? Our bodies are on this earth. It is what ministers, right? The ministry of reconciliation, uh, God's will here on earth. And so we should give our bodies to Christ to perform his will. Um, And then we dealt too with uh, verses four and five, where he talks about we are one body in Christ, right? Or one body uh, in Christ and every member one of another. And this is the first time in the Bible you see this mention of a body of Christ, a spiritual body, right? Not his physical body, right? You see that throughout his earthly ministry, right? But as far as this spiritual body that he's making up of Jew and Gentile in himself, this is the first mention you see of it. Um, and that's because that's part of the mystery given to Paul, right? So Romans being that first book, that foundational book for understanding the mystery, for understanding the dispensation of grace, for understanding our gospel uh, is found in the book of Romans. Um, and this week, we'll be looking at 6-10, through 10, which deals with uh, gifts given, as well as uh, our love for one another and our love for God. Um, so we'll get into verses 6-10. through 10. It says, Having then gifts deferring according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. So he says, having then gifts deferring. Um, Different gifts were given to members of the body of Christ to edify it. And again, this was during the Acts period, when it was being started. We didn't have, they didn't have the fulfilled word of God. It was still being written, right? The, the mystery was newly revealed to Paul. And so you had these gifts within the body to help edify the church and establish it. Uh, you see this in Ephesians 4 7 through 12. Verse 7, it says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So every one of us is given grace. Uh, Verse 11, it says, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the reason those gifts were given in verse 11 was for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. So that's why those gifts were given. And they were given until a certain point. And that point was uh, until we had grown into the doctrine into Christ. Right until we had the doctrine to grow up into Christ, was the reason to give those gifts, and that's what he says in verse thirteen. Um, they were given till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you see that word till. So they were given till we all come into the unity of the faith. Um, so there is a stopping point for those gifts, which is where the debate is. When is that stopping point? Uh, but he says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lay, lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ from whom which, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So you see these gifts were given till we all come to the unity of the faith that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. People make that till we come to the unity of the faith when we get to heaven, right? Then we'll all have unity in the faith. That's what they say. What was also given that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. If the teal is when we get to heaven, then we have no excuse of being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, right? Because we haven't got there yet. So of course we're tossed to and fro. But if you make the teal... The completion of the body of Christ, right—the end of the Acts period, when the mystery was fully revealed, um, when you had all Scripture or all of Paul's epistles, uh, needed to understand the mystery. Then you're no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and therefore you no longer had the need for these spiritual gifts, right? Because you had the Word of God uh, for your understanding, your knowledge of the doctrine. Um, so they were given till a certain point. If you go to First Corinthians twelve thirty one. And regardless of the point in which the gifts stopped, uh, stop, the purpose of them was to edify uh, the body. 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one, 31, 1 uh, Corinthians 12, he deals with these spiritual gifts. And at the end, he says, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So apparently, you can covet the best gifts and have those best gifts, but there's still a more excellent way than having the gifts. Right? And he explains what that excellent way is in chapter 13. That's the way of charity. And at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. If you have the knowledge of the doctrine, and it tells you how you ought to behave, right? how you ought to edify one another, you no longer need a spiritual gift to help you do that. right? Because you have the doctrine that you can read and study for yourself. All right, so once you understood, once you became a man, you put away the childish things. Right, you no longer needed the help from spiritual gifts to know the doctrine. Right, um, because you now have full understanding with the Word of God. Uh, so he says, "covet earnestly the best gifts, but yet I show you a more excellent way." So there is a more excellent way than having spiritual gifts, and that's knowing the doctrine. Right, studying it for yourself and knowing it. Um, but the word "gifts" is a free gift. Or a gift of grace, a free gift. Okay, that's what the word gifts mean. Um, Gift in the Bible does not mean a natural ability or talent, which is what people make the spiritual gifts, right? It is your talent. God gave everybody talents. Well, yes, this is true, but that's not what a gift is. Okay, a spiritual gift is something given to you freely. Talents, you have to work and hone those skills. Yeah, you might have a knack for something, but you still have to practice and tone those skills, right? Hone those skills. It takes work. It takes effort. That's not a free gift given to you. If you wake up one day and you can play any song you want on the piano, that would be a spiritual gift, right? But nobody can do that. All right, you might have a knack for playing the piano, but you have to practice, right? It takes practice and time and effort uh, to get better at that. So that's not a free gift. Right, but this is what many people make this, right talents. Everyone's given a talent, and you need to use that talent God gave you for uh, the work at the ministry, is what they'll say. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He said you have gifts deferring, and they were given by the Spirit. Um, so these are free uh, gifts of grace that God gave to the church. Um, he says it's according to the grace given unto us. So these gifts were given uh, by grace. They weren't earned, and they were given to perform a function. They weren't for show Uh, They weren't for power or for money-making, which, again, is what you see with a lot of the televangelists, right? The people on TV who claim they healed someone, right? And they're on there, you know, just donate your money now. Whatever you give, God will bless you tenfold, right? And so people are giving money trying to get a blessing from these people who are claiming to be, have these spiritual gifts of healing and prophecy and things, right? And I put a prophecy on your life. God's going to heal whatever situation you're in, right? And they say these things. They're doing it to get money, right, for power, um, that wasn't the purpose or the function of these gifts. They were there, again, to edify the body, to perform a function within the body, to build it up into Christ. Um, so again, people make uh, make a show of the spiritual gifts. And you know that's not a true spiritual gift because it wasn't the purpose of what they were given for. Um, but he says, whether prophecy, so the first spiritual gift he lists here is prophecy. He says, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, Uh, Again, prophecy was given for the purpose to edify the church. We go back to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul deals with this, uh, he says, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that you all speak with tongues, but rather that you prophesy, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So he says, I rather you prophesy so that you can edify one another. If you speak in tongues, you're only edifying yourself and nobody can understand it. There's no profit to that, right? You're not edifying the church when you do that. He says, if you do speak in tongues... I want somebody there to interpret it so that the church can be edified. So you have to have that understanding of what someone is saying to be edified, because that was the purpose of the gifts. Uh, If you look down in verse 9 through 12, he says, So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words, easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak it into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so, ye, for as much ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. So he says, there are many voices, and they're all significant. But if you don't know what the voice is saying, it's like a barbarian to you, right? Because you have no idea what they're saying. He says, I would that you uh, be zealous of spiritual gifts. Uh, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. So that's what they are to seek with their spiritual gifts, the edifying of the church, the building it up. Uh, Verse 16 through 19, he says, Else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, if I give him to thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest. So at the end of your speaking in tongues, if nobody understands what you're saying, when you get done, nobody's going to say amen because they have no idea what you just said and whether or not you're done. So it's just going to be an awkward silence. Right? How can they know to say amen and confirm what you just said, which is what amen means, truly, truly, right? You're confirming what someone has just said when you have no idea what they just said, right? And so this is what was going on in Corinth. They were just speaking in tongues, saying, like, look at my spiritual gift. And Paul's saying there's no purpose to this, right? You have to edify. The purpose of the gift is to edify. He says, for thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also, than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. So he says, I speak in more tongues than any of y'all, but I would rather only speak five words in the church so that people can understand them, than speak ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. So again, his point is you have to have understanding of what is being said so that the church can be edified. In uh, the verse twenty-six. He says, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, have a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, Let all things be done unto edifying? So there again, the purpose of these gifts were that they be done unto edifying of the church. Um, So again, the purpose of prophecy was uh, to edify the church. Um, He says prophecy, though, would cease if you look in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 2, he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. So charity is greater than the gift of prophecy, he says. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy but have not charity, I am nothing. It doesn't matter. Look at verse 8 through 10. He says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So again, here he says the prophecies will fail, the tongues will cease, um, knowledge will vanish away. We know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So again, the prophecies and tongues would cease when that which is perfect is come. And again, that's the building up of the body of Christ when it comes into a perfect man, right, that has the full doctrine, the full knowledge of the mystery. Um, so there in 1 Corinthians 13, you see that there was an end to the gifts, right? He says they're going to cease. They're going to vanish away. Um, so again, prophecy would cease. So you see that it's a spiritual gift that no longer exists today. Uh, but he says, prophesy, let them prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Uh, that is the faith or the doctrine according to the grace given to Paul. right? So the proportion of faith is the proportion of the message right? given to Paul, the doctrine. Uh, verse 7, he says, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry. The word wait here does not mean to be patient, to sit there until something happens. The word wait means to attend to, like a waiter. You call them a the waiter because they're serving, they're attending to someone. Um, in the Psalms, when it says, I will wait upon the Lord, it doesn't mean how most people preach it. You just wait for God to do something in your life. He's saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. Right? I will wait upon the Lord. I'm going to serve him. Uh, if you look at Second Chronicles seventeen nineteen. Says, These waited on the king beside those whom the king put in the fence cities throughout all the Judah. The ones that waited on the king were the ones that were serving the king. right? Weren't that they were waiting on the king to do something. They were serving him is what that means. Uh, so here he says, whoever has the gift of ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Let us attend to it. Right? Let us be serving in our capacity to minister. Um, and then the same thing for the teaching, or he that teacheth attend to teaching, is what he's saying. Uh, Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. So he's having the same purpose here with the teaching and the exhortation. You need to wait on it, right? You need to attend to it. You need to be doing it. Because that word wait means to attend to, uh, to serve. Uh, He says, he that giveth uh, do so with simplicity. That means to give generously without boasting, no strings attached. So when you give with simplicity, it's not like, uh, yeah, I'm going to give you this money, but I expect something in return. Or, did you see how much I gave? Did you see how much I put in the offering plate? Or, no, you give with simplicity, right? Uh, Cheerfully, um, generously, with no strings attached. He says, he that ruleth with diligence. That means don't be lazy, right? Be diligent about what you're doing. Uh, and he that show of mercy with cheerfulness. And that means to not be grudgingly, right? Not grudgingly give mercy. Well, I guess because God said, I'm going to show you mercy today. Right. No, you do so cheerfully. Right? You do so generously. Uh, the point of the gifts, though, was to establish God's will and not their own. Okay, This, again, was the point of the gifts, to edify the body of Christ, to do God's will, not your own will, with these spiritual gifts. Uh, verse 9, he says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which evil is evil, cleave to that which is good. Uh, Before we get into this section, verses 9 through 21, Paul's going to be talking about good works. Okay, and grace teaches us to do good works, or should teach us to do good works. Um, In Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So in Christ Jesus, we were created to do good works. Write that God ordained before that we should walk in them. So we should walk in good works being in Christ Jesus. If you go to Titus 2, 11 through 15, he says, Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which. That's verse 1. Verse 11 of Titus 2, he says, For grace, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. So there he says, the grace of God that brings salvation, teaches us to deny ungodliness. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In the verse twelve, he says that he purified us to make a pure people zealous of good works. So this is what the grace of God should teach us that we should be zealous of good works. Uh, Titus three eight says, "This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful." To maintain good works, these things are good and profitable unto men. So, the purpose of good works under grace is not to earn grace, earn salvation, earn God's favor, it's to serve others, right? These things are profitable unto men, right? And God has called us to do good works for others, to be profitable unto men. Um, But again, you do this in light of understanding who you are in Christ, understanding the mystery. Um, Your old man is dead. So your flesh is dead, right? The old man's dead. You're a new man in Christ. So you can now seek others good knowing who you are in Christ. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says we are complete in him. So you're saved. You're justified. um, You're complete in him, right? You have everything you need spiritually from God in Christ. So there's no reason to seek your fleshly desires. You can now look on the desires of others and meet their needs, right? You can do good works to serve them. So understanding, knowing who you are in Christ, changes your mind to say, well, I don't need these things. These things are fleshly, right? I don't have to cheat my brother, cheat my neighbor, right? I don't have to try to get above them in the worldly things, right? I can instead serve them and do good works to profit them. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, um, this is a verse where it talks about our hope that is far greater than the sufferings we go through. So again, having that um, future outlook of who you are in Christ, your destination, which is a hope, right? The hope of glory, um, heaven. Um, understanding that, again, should give you the mindset that what happens on this earth doesn't really matter in the end as far as things that are fleshly. It's the spiritual things that matter, right? And doing good works to help others and possibly win others is what is more important. So again, these good works that Paul goes through here, it's in light of what Christ has already done for you, of who you are in Christ. It's not to earn favor, Uh, Not to earn salvation, not to earn a better relationship with God. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, But he says, let love be without dissimulation. Uh, Basically, let your love, don't let it be fake, masked, or hypocritical. Uh, The word simulate means to simulate something, right? You fake it. It's not the real thing, right? It's like the real thing, but it's not. You're doing a simulation of it. Um, Think about the Super Bowl. They always do a PlayStation game simulation. So, they simulate the two teams that are in the Super Bowl to play a computerized version, and then the outcome of that game is who they say, right, is predicting who's going to win. But they simulate the two teams on the PlayStation of the actual game. It's not the actual game, right? It's fate. It's PlayStation. So, you see that word simulation in this word dissimulation. It means don't be fate, right? Don't let your love be fate. Um, it means unfeigned. Uh, if you go to Second Corinthians 6 6. Says, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. So that's love that was not fake, right? True love. Uh, we love for Christ's sake. Second Corinthians 5.14, he says, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Right? So the love of Christ constraineth us, understanding that Christ died for us, because we were dead in our sins, but now we're alive unto him, and we should live our lives for him. Um, so we love for Christ's sake. True love isn't this, you know, well, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter who they are, you just love them. Right? Just show them love. Um, yes, you be kind. You can be polite. You don't have to be fake when you're polite, right? You can sincerely be polite to someone, but still tell them the truth. First um, Timothy 1, three through 3-5, so Paul's the one that says, right, let your love be without dissimulation, but throughout his ministry, you see him rebuking people, right? Um, First Timothy 1, 3-5, he says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of a faith unfeigned. So he charges Timothy here to not teach any other doctrine. Uh, and the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So that word charity is love, but it's biblical love, right? Love that rejoices in the truth, uh, that has a pure conscience and faith unfeigned, right? That holds to no other doctrine. First uh, Corinthians thirteen four through 8 Where we were just there, where it talks about charity. It says, Charity suffereth long, is kind, charity envyeth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So verse 6 there, says, It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. So you can't rejoice in the truth and let someone who is teaching wrongly, right, or doing wrongly, and be like, ah, oh, that's okay, you know, don't worry about it. We're brothers in Christ, man. Well, that's not rejoicing in the truth. The person just did something wrong or is teaching something wrong, you correct that person, you rebuke them, okay? Um, that is true biblical love. Romans 16, 17 He says, Now I beseech you, brother, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. That doesn't sound very loving. You want me to avoid somebody? And i supposed to accept them and love them like Christ accepted me? Well, not if they're teaching wrongly. Not if they're contrary to the truth. God loves truth more than he loves people who reject the truth. And many people would say that's a false statement. But God loves truth. When you think about it, more than He loves people who reject the truth, because what happens to people who reject the truth? They're going to burn in hell, right? So God loves truth more than those who reject it, and we should too. Um, we love God before we love man, right? So real love is going to, right, tell the truth to people, even if it may be harsh or mean. Um, if you look at First Timothy six three through six. All throughout Paul's epistles, you see him correcting people, rebuking people. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 3, 3 6 he says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil sur- surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is a great right grain. So there again, he says, people that do this, again, contrary to the doctrine, um, he says, withdraw thyself. So avoid them, right? Don't hang out with them if they're teaching wrongly. Uh, 2 Timothy two fourteen through 18. He says, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, But to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And the word will eat as doth the canker of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So here he calls out two people who are teaching wrongly Hymenius and Philetus. He says, their word will eat as doth a canker. Right? It will destroy. It will subvert or overturn hearers, the hearers of it. And of course their error was, they said, the resurrection is past already. Um, in First Timothy, he calls out hemanius and says, I have turned him over to Satan so that he will learn not to blaspheme. It doesn't sound very loving, Paul. Not a very loving person. Yet he's the one that says, let your love be without dissimulation. Don't let it be faith. Again, true love rejoices in the truth, right? And we had the truth from the Word of God, not from feelings, okay? Not from what the world says is love. Um, And then 1 Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20 is where he says he's delivered hymenus unto Satan because of his false teaching. Um, But good works come from right doctrine, and that's what we read in Titus 2, 6 through 8, where he says, Young men likewise exhort to be so reminded. So he's telling Titus uh, to exhort the young men uh, to be so reminded. In all things, show in thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. He says, Show thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So again, some people say, well, you know, I don't agree with everything that church says, but I go there so that I can minister to others, right? I have good works there. Well, he says here, yes, uh, show yourself a pattern of good works, but in doctrine, showing uncorruptness. You're corrupting the doctrine, the truth, if you put yourself under false teaching and don't say anything, right? By your presence there, by your action in that church, you're saying, I agree with this, Right? If you don't say anything. Um, so he says, yes. Yeah, show yourself a pattern of good works, but there's more to it. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, right? You know what you believe, and you speak it truthfully. You have that sound speech. Um, so there you see that love without dissimulation does not mean you accept everybody, right? And you just go with the flow, right? And be kind to everyone. Yes, be kind, be polite, but you also call out those who are in error, those who... uh reject the truth. Um, Jesus' ministry, he did it all the time, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees, he called them out, called them vipers, right? Think about when he went to the temple and overthrew the tables. That wasn't very loving of Jesus. Yes, it was. It was true love, love for God first. Um, And his love was not faith, right? He rejoiced in the truth. And he showed that when he needed to by condemning those who were in error. Um, so when we say love without dissimulation, it doesn't mean like, accept everyone and just be nice to everyone no matter what they do. Um, you have to have true love, unfeigned love. And he continues. He says, "Abhor that which is evil." So you abhor that which is evil. Um, he's quoting here from Amos five fourteen through fifteen. Abhor that which is evil. cleave to that which is good. If you go to Amos five. You'll see a difference here, though. Paul just says, Pour that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. That's all he says. But here in Amos 5:14 14 through 15, it says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So again, under the Old Covenant, he says, Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. And it may be that the Lord will be gracious to you. Paul has already taught for eight chapters, you have the grace of God, right? That's who you are in Christ. You stand in grace, he says in Romans 5. You are at peace with God. So here he just says, you need to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. He doesn't go on to say that you can have grace from God, right? You already have grace from God. Um, He said in verse 3, according to the grace that is given unto me, right, and minister of God to you. Um, So there's the difference. Yes, Paul quoted prophecy, but he only quoted a phrase, Right, He's not saying that verse is all for us. Right, You only take what he quoted. But he says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Uh, so the difference is we already have grace. Um, again, these are good things to do. This is spiritual application. Right, All scripture is profitable for correction and righteousness. So we can go back to the Old Testament and see that God wants us to abhor that which is evil. Uh, Psalms 10.3, it says, uh, for the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorth. So the Lord abhors the wicked, right? Those who boast of their heart's desires, right? Of what they want in their flesh. Uh, Psalms 101. This is a Psalm of David. He says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. When I shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that work of deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. So this is David saying, all the wicked that are in the city of the Lord, I'm going to cut them off, right? I'm going to kick them out of the city. I'm going to kill them. Uh, those who delight in the Lord, right? Those who walk in a perfect way, those can serve me, right? Those can walk with me in the house of the Lord. So you see, David, right? Abhorring that which is evil, cleaving to that which is good. So no, we shouldn't go and kill the wicked, right? God is offering grace in this dispensation. That doesn't mean, again, that you, yeah, it's okay. I don't care that you do that. Yeah, we can hang out, you know. You need to abhor those people or abhor the deeds that they're doing, right, and avoid them if they're going to uh, continue to reject the truth, right, minister the truth to them. And if they reject it, you can stay away from those people, right? You still have a ministry to them, talk to them, speak to them, be polite, It doesn't mean you got to be buddy-buddy with them, right? You abhor that, which is evil. Um, Psalms 119, 104. A lot of people know Psalms 119, 105, where it talks about, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Uh, The verse before it says, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So, of course, David had the law. Uh, and he says, through thy precepts, through thy law, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So apparently the law teaches us to hate every false way, right? Um, verse 162 and 163. says, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor poor lying, but thy law do I love. Right? Doesn't the law teach, bear not a false witness against thy neighbor? Right? A poor lying, you should abhor it. Um, but you should love, again, the righteousness of God, right? And do it. Grace should teach us to do that. Um, Proverbs 6 16 through 19 says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift. And running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Or among brethren. So these are seven abominations, seven things that God says he hates. Right? So again, God hates wickedness. right, And we should abhor that evil too. And then Proverbs 8.13. says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. So there again, um, to hate evil, right? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So again, all throughout Scripture, you see God's hate for evil, right? And those who delight in the law of God, they also hate evil. And so Paul here is saying the same thing, right? We, under grace, should still abhor evil, right? We should not like it, we should not rejoice in it, we should abhor it. Um, and he says we should abhor the evil and cleave to that which is good. Uh, a good definition for cleave is to leave something and then you Hold on to something else. And you see this in Genesis two twenty four, where he says, right, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right? You're leaving your parents, you're cleaving now to your wife, right? So that word cleave means to leave something and cleave to something else. So you see the contrast here. He's saying cleave to that which is good, which means you leave the bad, right? When you cleave to that which is good, you will hate the evil, right? So pour that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And of course, if you take the C, you have that word leave in the word cleave, right? So cleaving means you're also leaving something. Um, so you want to cleave to that which is good. When you love good, you will hate evil. Um, 1 Thessalonians five twenty-one through 22. Paul says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. He says, "Hold to, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from the appearance of evil." Um, Romans sixteen nineteen. He says, "For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good, and simple concerning evil." So his point here is, I would have you wise, right? I would have you knowledgeable of that which is good, right? Doing it and simple to that which is evil, right? You're ignorant of the evil, right? Not that evil exists, you're not ignorant that it exists, but you're just not involved with it, right? You don't do it, you don't uh, have knowledge of it because you're cleaving to that which is good. Um, Hebrews five twelve through 14 shows us how we can know what is good. Of course, Hebrews is to the remnant of Israel, but we can learn from it. He says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So those who are skilled in the word have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Um, so he says, these people here, they're babes, right, because they can't discern good and evil. They need milk, he says, but those who can have strong meat can discern between the good and evil because they're skillful in the word of God. So again, study to show thyself approved, a workman unto God, right, rightly dividing the word of truth. Get skillful in the word so that you can discern the good from the evil and know how you ought to behave. And of course, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 all scriptures given by inspiration of the Spirit, and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and righteousness. For correction and instruction in righteousness. All right. So all scripture is profitable for instruction and righteousness, which is what we're dealing with in Romans twelve, nine through twenty-one. Right. The difference is you already have salvation. You already have all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You're not doing it to earn anything from God. You're doing it in light of who you are in Christ. And so we can take all the Word of God to instruct us how we ought to behave. To instruct us in what is good and what is evil. And he says, "Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love." Now, Ephesians four thirty two says, "Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you." Right? We forgive one another as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. We do it for Christ's sake, right? Because we love Him. It's the love of Christ that constrains us, so we can then be kindly affection one to another uh, with brotherly love. A lot of people try to get when you have brotherly love, right? Well, this is Philadelphia love, and they get into the Greek words for love. Um, really, what brotherly love means is love of the brethren. All right, it's not like it's some different type of love. Right, so love of the brethren, quite simply, is what it is. Um, and that's true love, love without dissimulation, right? So again, if a brethren is teaching something wrongly or living in evil, you correct them, right? You rebuke them, you exhort them. Uh, so see be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. So our liberty in Christ again is for service one to another. Galatians five thirteen. Says for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. All right. So don't use your liberty in Christ. Right. Not being under the law, not having to being required to do anything for salvation. Right. Um, don't use that liberty to fulfill the desires of your flesh, but rather to serve one another. Uh, so our liberty in Christ is for service one to another. In Galatians six ten. It says, as we have therefore opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So that as we have the opportunity, do good unto all men, especially uh, the brethren in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-24. This is in the context of where he's been dealing with the meats. Might be Second Corinthians 10. First 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. It says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. So again, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Not all things edify the brethren. We need to seek not our own, but the wealth of others. Right? That could be spiritual wealth as well. Um. Just because something is lawful, right, doesn't mean you do it if you know it offends someone else, right? The weaker brother, those who don't have as strong a faith as you, right? You seek their benefit, not yours, um, is what he's trying to say there. Uh, And then Philippians 2, 2 through 5. Says, Fulfill you my joy that you be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look at not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about right, he was in the form of God, but thought not robbery to be equal with God and humbled himself, right, and then. He died on the cross for our sins, right? That's how he committed his love toward us, taking care of our spiritual needs. Um, so we should have the mind of Christ, not looking on our own things, but on the things of others and how we can minister to others. Um, it's also interesting, a doctrine we find from Paul is that we work with our own hand, right? So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus saying, well, don't worry about what you're going to eat or the clothes you're going to wear, right? Because I'll provide for you. Sell all that you have and follow me, right? Quit your job. Sell everything you have. You're going to follow me, right? I'm going to make you a disciple. You're going to trust in me to provide for you. You're not going to work for money to buy those things. You trust in me. Whereas Paul says, work and provide for yourself. Right? So there's a difference there. You're not selling everything you have and trusting God to provide. You're working and providing for yourself. Um, when you work and provide for yourself, you can meet your own needs and then give to others you don't have others, you're not dependent on others to take care of you because you're providing for your own. Um, you will also be less tempted to abuse or cheat others, especially when you add the contentment to your life. Right? He says, uh, if we have food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Um, so the point here is, we'll look at some verses here that kind of show this, uh, where he deals with brotherly love and working for yourself. When you do that, one, you're busy, right? So you're not in everybody's business. Two, you don't have needs for others to meet you, and you can therefore minister to those who do have need, right? And you're less tempted to be like, um, cheat this person or steal from this person, right? So you're more apt to do good works with what you have. Um, but if you go to First Thessalonians 4, verse 9, it says, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we bese- beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. So you see there where he says, uh, But as touching brotherly love, you need not have it unto you. He says you do it towards all the brethren which are in Macedonia. And there's a semicolon at the end of that verse. So he's continuing on with the thought. He says, And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Semicolon again, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. So apparently working with your own hands and providing for yourself, you can walk honestly in that toward those that are without and those that are part of the faith. But it goes hand in hand with the brotherly love here. All right, so again, you provide for yourselves. You can also provide for uh, the brethren. In 2 Thessalonians, some people did not heed to this instruction from Paul, it seems. Because if you look at verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which you receive from us. Uh, verse 10, he says, Uh, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So there again you see uh, him telling them, right, people didn't listen to the tradition we gave to y'all, that you work with your own hands. Right, but rather you're being disorderly working not at all you're busy by right so again these are people that did not listen to Paul and they're walking disorderly among the brethren all right and he says if you don't work you don't eat all right provide for yourself eat your own bread There just seems a connection there between working and brotherly love right so it's kind of interesting uh, in the first first Timothy 5 three. says, honor widows that are widows indeed. So there in Romans, he says, uh, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Honor means to prefer, right, to show them honor, take care of them. That's what he says here, "Honor honor widows that are widows indeed. And he's dealing with taking care of widows. Verse 8, though, he says, if any man provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. In this chapter, he defines who is a widow indeed. It's someone who has no family at all. He says if they have family, well, the family needs to provide for their own house. Now, if you see that word honor, right, honor the widows that are widows indeed. This is part of that being kindly affection to the brethren, right, honoring them, preferring one another, right, taking care of others' needs. So again, if you're working for yourself, providing for yourself, then you can also take care of others' needs. Is the connection there that I'm trying to make? Um, but again, this isn't. To earn favor with God, as many people might teach when they teach good works. Uh, but this is in light of who you are in Christ, in light of what we learn, Romans 1-8, through 8, uh, the gospel of the grace of God, who you are in Christ. Uh, but any thoughts or questions on this?